I'd like to invite you to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to read verses 31 through 35, 31 through 35. Just want to um, set you an encouragement today to have folks join us and particularly see an, an adult baptism and um, that is something we just need to continually pray for. Wouldn't it be a joy every, uh, every week if we could be a, a baptizing uh, adults into the church of Jesus Christ who've come to faith in Him? And the way that happens is that we, ha- we just start inviting people to, into our small groups, uh, into our homes, to come and join us in worship. Uh, we start just getting involved in speaking into people's lives and loving them well. And uh, let God bear the fruit, and he, but He will. And I hope that we just have a passion, a growing passion as a congregation uh, to see the gospel spill over, over these walls and into our community. There's so many folks who are lost without Jesus Christ and who need uh, to be found. And we're going to see that uh, this morning, uh, our Savior's love and concern for those who are lost. Let's give our attention. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's give our attention, uh, let's just bow a moment in, in prayer. Well, God in heaven, this is your word. Jesus, you, you want us to see your heart, your passion, your commitment, your love for us, and for a lost world. And so, oh, Holy Spirit, give us eyes then to see, to know Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. The title of my message is An Intimate Look at the Savior. Um, you know as well as I do that it's very possible to read your Bible through uh, numerous times, read the stories, even in some sense believe the ideas, and not know Jesus. Not really actually know him, know what, he's, know what he's like, have a sense of uh, what, what motivates him, a sense of his heart, not really have a personal relationship in that sense with him. It, it'd be like going and listening to a lecture of, of some historical figure and having some facts about <coughs> the man, maybe Abraham Lincoln, and yet uh, you don't really know his heart, you don't know what he's like, you, don't, you, you can't anticipate what he's going to do. Well, the Word of God is given to us so that the Holy Spirit can take that Word and these stories and these words so that we can know Jesus. 1 John 5.20, John writes, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Jesus wants you to know Him. Actually, really, truly know Him. And I think this text this morning gives us a wonderful then insight into the heart of Christ. What moves Him and motivates Him? What makes Him tick? What makes Him do the things that that He does? How does He feel about what He does? Well, we have that here 
in our text this morning, a very short little text. Jesus has been uh, going on his way to Jerusalem. We know that from Luke chapter 9. He set his face to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. He's just performed this miracle, uh, casting out a, a demon from a woman who was bent over, and now she can stand up and praise God. And the synagogue ruler gets upset because it happened on the Sabbath, and he rebukes the people, and Jesus publicly rebukes him and all the other leaders there. The, the people rejoice. The, the leaders are ashamed and embarrassed. Jesus now moves on to the next village. And we find here that some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here. Herod wants uh, to kill you. Now the, um, the question that sort of gets raised here is, why are they suddenly being nice to Jesus? Uh, the, it's the only instance in the Bible that we have, other than Nicodemus coming and asking a fair question, but we don't ever find the Pharisees doing anything to minister to Jesus, to protect Jesus. We know actually what's going on is the Pharisees have set up, have made up their minds to kill Jesus. Uh, they've determined that this man does, uh, cannot stay alive. He's too dangerous. What he's doing is too blasph blasphemous. He must be put to death. And so they're already in conversations about how to make that happen. So why are they coming to Jesus? Well, it's very likely um, that they are in some correspondence with Herod, Jesus says, you go back and tell him. Uh, Jesus seems to understand that, that they've come, in some sense, as messengers from Herod. And they pass along this information in order to threaten Jesus. It's a veiled threat. Um, their, their desire, most likely, is that he'll be frightened and that he will go into hiding. The, the, the chief uh, point seems to be, get away from here. Every time Jesus went into a, into a town or a village and, and did his work, those who opposed him uh, were more than happy to see him leave. And so it seems that this is very likely what is motivating them. And the threat of death here is no idle threat. This is the man, of course, who put John the Baptist to death in the most callous and wicked manner. Uh, he is an, a vile, wicked, perverse man, just like his father before him, Herod the Great. It was said of uh, Caesar, I believe it was, said it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. You'd had a better chance of surviving. Uh, Herod would put his own family members to death. This, um, so the threat is not an idle threat. It's a very real threat. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I receive this sort of information, uh, Pastor Dale just wants you to know uh, so-and-so, very high up in government position, and in, the, in those days, uh, rulers were the law in many ways. Uh, he wants you dead. He wants to kill you. He's trying to kill you. That would unnerve me a little. All right, it would unnerve me a lot. I don't think I'm that unique. It doesn't rattle Jesus at all. I want you to see the courage of Jesus here. But it's not some bravo courage. It is just mission courage. Jesus uh, says, uh, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Now, Jesus' relationship with the civil government is a, a fascinating study all by itself. Jesus, born under the law as a man, um, would pay honor to government authority, right? Pay unto Caesar what Caesar's. What belongs to Caesar, give to Caesar. But he has no fear of human authority, and he is under human authority as the Lord, if that makes sense. He has willingly placed himself as a man under civil authority, but he is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as King of kings and Lord of lords, he speaks the truth about Herod. Go and tell that fox 
It's not a compliment. Uh, foxes in those days were seen as varmints, like you might think of a possum today, a backyard nuisance. Uh, just a little brighter, maybe, uh, than, a, than a possum. Uh, so they're cunning. They're deceptive. But it's a backyard nuisance. It's a weak thing, a varmint. Go tell the fox um, that I'm, uh, you know, leave me alone. I'm working. That's basically the message. It's, it's interesting. Just a side note. Jesus clearly has contempt for this man. When Jesus was on trial and brought before Ananias and Caiaphas, the high priests, uh, he, would, he would answer them. When he was brought before Pilate, he was willing to answer Pilate. When he was brought before Herod, he didn't say a word. He has nothing to say to, uh, to this vile murderer of his good friend and cousin, John the Baptist. He has nothing to say to Herod at all. I want you to see Jesus' courage and strength here, his holy conviction. He responds to Herod as judge over Herod. He has no fear of him and, and tells the Pharisees, you go back to him and, and, and just tell him, you know, leave me alone. I'm working. I'm doing what I have come to do. I, I am casting out demons. I'm curing diseases. I'm overthrowing the work of the devil in an underhanded way. Jesus says, I'm destroying your boss, right? I'm destroying your company, Herod. Herod is clearly a tool of the devil, of the, uh, an agent of, of wickedness. And Jesus says, I'm doing it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And I'm going to do it again the next day until I'm done doing it. Nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to finish my course. I just want you to see Jesus as a holy warrior. He is on a holy mission, engaged in holy warfare. And he's not going to stop until it's done. He is absolutely um, committed to this. And so he's not going to be put off by the meager threats of this puny little man. It's a beautiful thing to see. It may, I hope in some sense uh, you, you just want to, awesome, praise God for Jesus. Love it that he's not deterred from his mission because his mission was our salvation. Secondly, the commitment of Jesus. First, his courage. Secondly, his commitment. He says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. I must. I want you to see two things here. First, a holy obligation, and then secondly, a tragic observation. A holy obligation. I must go on my way. Why? Why must he? Well, there's, there's a variety of reasons we could give to that. One is uh, that before the foundations of the world were laid, Jesus covenanted with the Father to save sinners, to be the mediator, the advocate, the sacrifice. Paul tells us that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Peter says the same thing. That before the world began, Jesus covenanted. He didn't suddenly, uh, looking over uh, humanity one day, say to the Father, I, I, that's it, I can't take it anymore. Just send me down, I'll volunteer. It's not how it happened. Jesus Christ and the Father covenanted before the world began that he would be the advocate and the mediator and savior of sinners. And it is the only way sinners are going to be saved. This must, you see, this holy obligation is rooted in the will of the Father and it's rooted in the need of humanity. We needed exactly this to take place and Jesus understands that. He needs to go, but he needs to go to Jerusalem. He cannot die out here in some little village. He can't die in Tiberias, which is Herod's capital. 
He has to die in Jerusalem. Now, why does he have to die in Jerusalem? Because that's where prophets go to die. That's where prophets go to die. That's what he says. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. It seems to be a, a, a little uh, a, a saying of the day, sort of a little proverb. That if, if, if you're a prophet, if you're going to die properly, it, it can't be at the hand of pagan kings. You have to die at the hand of God's own people. You need to, if you're going to do it right, you need to die at the hand of a, of a Jewish king, and it needs to happen in Jerusalem. You see, it's a, it's, it's a little comment about Israel's history and the history of God's prophets. They were persecuted and martyred by Israelites, by God's people. They were put to death in Jerusalem. For instance, uh, we read of Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord, in the temple court. They didn't like the message, they didn't like what he was saying. They don't repent. They stone him to death at the command of the king. Tradition says that Isaiah the prophet was, was bound up and sawed in two, maybe being referenced in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Jeremiah was thrown into a well full of mud. I would have died there except someone had pity and came along and pulled him out. That is their history. That's their heritage. It's why Stephen, when he's, when he's being stoned as a messenger of God, says to the crowd in Acts 7, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they responded by screaming, plugging their ears, and stoning them. You see, it's, it's just a tragic, tragic commentary on the spiritual nature of God's people. The truth was, you see, that the leaders particularly, the leaders of God's people hated God. That was the truth. They wanted nothing to do with his messengers. They hated to be rebuked for their sin. They wouldn't receive it. They, being called to repentance was a, a, offensive to them. It was reprehensible. And so they respond since, truly by killing the messenger over and over and over again. That's the kind of people Jesus is dealing with. These are not well-intentioned, but just misled people. These are supposedly God's people. They have the Old Testament. They have the prophets. They have the law. They have the promises. And they hate God. And yet, at the thought of Jerusalem, you see, Jesus' heart grieves and breaks. We need to see the compassion of Christ here. Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It sounds like David, doesn't it? When David is grieving for Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom died because of his sin. Jesus would literally weep over Jerusalem. We find when, when he finally comes to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, he drew near to the city, he saw it, and he wept. So I just want you to notice the profound contrast here. On the one hand, you have this wicked, wicked city. The, the awful reality of, of, this, of this evil that, that has the truth and yet despises the truth and, and actually puts to death those sent by God. 
Jesus correctly defines them as the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. It's their identity, it's their heritage and history. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus loves them. He loves them. He's got to see the compassion of, 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 of Christ here. This earnest desire to gather them. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. That's an, that's an astonishing thing to say. Who talks like that about the people who hate him and who want to kill him and who will kill him? They're going to put him to death. He knows this. So why would Jesus want to gather them under his wings? Why would he want to protect them from the judgment they so justly deserve? Well, it's because that's the character and nature of God. It's what God revealed of himself way back in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses says, God, show me your glory. And so God reveals himself to Moses, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the nature of God, the inherent nature of God. It's not just something that he puts on. That, that is, in, in some sense, the essence of God's concern. So much of what flows from God, his, his wrath, flows from his love. His promise to judge flows from his love for what is good and right and true. And so this is, this is the nature of God. The, the Bible says God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, that he... He's not willing that people should perish, but that all should repent. That's 2 Peter 3, 9. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You know, we hear that so often, and, and yet it, it so easily just sort of slips off. We think we know what it means. We just need to pray that the Holy Spirit helps us engage it. The young people are reading a book uh, right now by Francis Chan, um, Crazy Love, about, just about the love of God. I encourage you to find a good book on the love of God, the, the nature of God's love for sinners. See, that's why, he, that's why he's grieving over this wicked city. He loves them. And, and that's the marvel of the gospel. How could it be possible that Jesus knows you? He knows all the wicked things about you and all the wicked things that flow from the wickedness that, that is in you and is part of you. So he knows your sin, he knows your rebellion, he knows your lies, your lust, your wickedness, and yet the Bible's message is that he loves you, he wants to embrace us, he wants to protect us from the wrath we deserve. That's why the hymn writers say, amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, goes like this, depth of mercy can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace and provoked him to his face, would not listen to his calls, grieved him with a thousand falls. Why to me this waste of love? Ask my advocate above. See the scars on Jesus' face there before the throne of grace. There for me, my Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. When's the last time you just had an overwhelming sense of the love of God for you, the sinner? That he knew you, he understood you, all the wickedness about you, and yet he loved you.
Can you, can you, have you ever had that experience, the love of God for you, the sinner? I, I think that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That's what it feels like when, when we get grace, when we understand what we are and what God has, has done for us. You see, friends, if you're unconverted this morning, I, has it ever occurred to you that the living God against whom you've committed all your sins, that he grieves your rebellious heart and, and that he sincerely desires you to be saved? And I've heard people respond to that and say, well, great, if he wants to save me, let him save me. He knows where I am. He knows where to find me. He, can, he knows what to do. I'm open to that. You see, what, what people who say those sorts of things ignore is, is that while they're willing to presume on the love of God and descent in a sense to, you know, it, it, then it's up to God, the, the, the fact is they don't want to be saved. If they wanted to be saved, you see, they would be acting. They would be responding. They would be coming and repenting. Notice what Jesus says. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her, her brood, but what? You would not. You would not. Here's these two amazing desires. On the one hand, the desire of the Savior to protect sinners from what they deserve. And on the other hand, the desire of sinners, they would not, to remain in their lost and condemned condition. Jesus invited the people of his day to come, called them to repentance. They refused. They didn't want to. Ragan says time and again he had told people to repent of their sins and warned them to find safety from the judgment to come. Time and again he had invited them to receive him by faith. Time and again they had refused his gracious invitation. They would not repent. They would not believe. They would not be saved. Friends, that's, that's the awful, horrifying nature of sin. It's not just that you do bad things. The, the, the awful nature of a sin nature is that it loves to do bad things, and it hates the idea of repentance. Apart, you see, from the gracious awakening work of God in a human heart, no one will repent. You see, the amazing nature of grace is that it comes to people who by nature would not how can it be that the people of Jesus' day who saw him with their own eyes, who saw him do the miracles, who heard him speak the words, who watched him go to a cross, who heard the testimony that he was raised from the dead, who understood or at least received the gospel, how could it be after all of that they did not come into the light? And the biblical answer is because they loved the darkness, because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to be exposed. They didn't want their pride, you see, to be to be devastated. They didn't want to be seen as sinners desperately in need of a Savior. And it is that same spirit, folks, that keeps many good church-going West Michigan folks firmly in their favor of Jesus, but not in favor of repentance, not in favor of humiliation and admitting honestly how weak and lost and helpless we are, how desperately we need a Savior. And so we just don't tell the truth. But see, to be unwilling to be honest and unwilling then to repent, unwilling to be saved, carries an awful penalty. Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken. That God at some point forsakes those who forsake his invitation. 
and that point has arrived for Jerusalem. Jesus says, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. Now it is hidden from your eyes, is what he says in Luke 19. At some point, God in judgment says, okay, you refuse to see, you will not be able to see. And the eyes are blinded in judgment. And the punishment and the condemnation that's so deserved then at some point does come. Jesus says, verse 43, The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that happened in A.D. 70. And the entire city was torn apart brick by brick. The temple is utterly destroyed and the people in Jerusalem are ravaged by the Roman invaders. Riken says, What happened to Jerusalem will happen to any nation, city, church, or individual who refuses to find safety in Christ. If we will not come to Him, we will be forsaken by Him, and eventually we will be destroyed. That's the truth. That's what Jesus is communicating. So how do we apply this? Let me just give you shortly two applications. One, if you are unconverted this morning, Jesus is speaking in his word. This isn't just a guy up front regurgitating things he studied. Uh, Christ speaks in his word. And, and maybe you've heard the word over and over and over, and you've heard the gospel invitations, and the truth is that your, your heart is just hard to God. Maybe you don't think it is because you, you go to church and you believe some Christian doctrines, but the truth is, is that day in, day out, you don't, you're not on your knees. You don't have your Bible open. You're not repenting. You're not begging God to forgive you for your, your lust and your, your horrible attitude, your grumbling spirit. You're not begging God to change you. You just maybe have made peace with yourself or you've accepted that that's all that there is. But the gospel hasn't broken your heart. I want you to just know that Jesus knows you and Jesus loves you. And that Jesus grieves your state and desires your salvation. That's the gospel. He grieves your rebellion, and he desires your salvation. And maybe there's a part of you that says, that can't be, I, I can't imagine that he would want me after all that I've done, after all that I've seen, after all I've said, I, I can't believe that he would desire me. Well, friend, that's, that's just not true. He desired Jerusalem. After all that they had done, he was desiring, not just willing in some vague way, but earnest, eager, how I longed, how I would have gathered you as a hen covers her chicks. You've seen that happen? The chicks are in some danger, and the hen just spreads herself out, and the chicks find shelter and safety. He's talking about the coming of judgment, and that he desires to protect sinners from what they deserve. He desires that even for wicked Jerusalem. And friend, he desires it for you, but you have to repent. You have to repent. Which means you die to your excuses. You die to your pride. You die to whatever reputation you might think you're clinging on to. You let it go, and you repent, and you beg Jesus to forgive you. And Jesus says that he is willing then to save if you repent. Wesley closed his hymn with this verse, Now, Lord, move me to repent. And maybe this could be your prayer this morning. Lord, move me to repent. We can't even repent without his help. 
Move me to repent. Let me now myself lament. Instead of complaining about your circumstances and complaining about how things aren't right with this or that, we start to lament ourselves. Now my proud revolt deplore. Now believe and sin no more. If I rightly read your heart, merciful in every part, as before your throne I bow, pardon and accept me now. If you've never done that, or maybe you did it a long time ago, and your heart's grown cold and hard, I just beg you before Jesus to talk to him and bring yourself before him in repentance. Genuine repentance. And then receive what only Jesus can give you. For those of you who are converted, we need to remember what we were and what by nature, sinful nature, we still are. We are made new creations, but you know that that remnant of sin clings to you, and we can so easily be blind to it. just want you to see yourself as you were when Jesus found you. See what you, what you were by your nature, by yourself. You, you and I were wicked, Jerusalem, particularly those of us who've been born and raised in the church, who've heard the truth from, from our infancy, and yet how often didn't we rebel against it? How often don't we rebel against it still? And we don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to respond to it. We don't want to repent. We like our life. We like our, our sin even. We like having our way. We like having our reputation, whatever it might be. Jesus calls us this morning to, to remember the love that loved us then and, and then to go back to that love again today. And maybe you're feeling like um, you've blown it too many times. Well, the love is still there. Maybe you, um, you just feel so discouraged about your Christian walk and how, how poorly it's been going. I just want you to fix your eyes on Jesus and think about the courage and the commitment and the compassion that moved him this day to go to the cross for you and to know it's the same Jesus, it's the same conviction, same compassion, same commitment that is moving him still. That his desire for you is still the same now as it was then when he went to the cross to die for your sin. He will not give up on you. He is going to see his work completed. He started it. He never finishes it before it's done. He's going to see it all the way through to the end. You will be one day glorified as you abide in his love as you abide in his love. And so, Lord, so friends, receive then the Lord's love for you. Receive his love for you. Abide in that love. Rest in that love. Let that love transform you and love him in return. This Jesus, friends, is our Jesus. We can know him. May God grant it. Amen. Lord Jesus, you know every single heart in this room. You know how proud and lost we are by nature. You know how we resist the truth. Jesus, we are desperate for your help. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves alive. We cannot change ourselves. But Jesus, you can forgive us for being so slow to come to you. Lord, I pray that you would break down every idle throne. I pray that you would break down our, our foolish, damning pride. I pray, Lord, that you would show us the wonder of your love for us while we were yet sinners and while we are sinners still. 
And give us, Lord, the ability to believe that love, that that love brought Jesus to a cross where he gave up his life bearing our sin so that we could be robed in his righteousness and we could be made new. and We could become imitators of God and learn how to love. Father, we need to hear this, not just the world out there. We need to hear this. So Jesus, please don't leave us in our unbelief. Don't leave us in our unrepentance. Don't leave us in our sin. Don't leave us in our lost condition, if that's our condition this morning. Don't leave us in our apathy. But Lord God, humble us so that you might exalt us. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Oh, so Lord, please, we ask for that. And thank you for Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us in order to redeem us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.